0: This past winter, I ran across a passage that I've been mulling over, talking about teaching over and over and over and again and again. There are words from the Apostle Paul out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29, Colossians chapter 1, and I keep thinking about them because of Paul's Life and what he expects for the church. And so here's the words Paul says, I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that's been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, the saints, Christians, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's He whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. Paul is striving for an end goal, everyone. He wants everyone to be mature. Every ounce of his body, every breath he takes, imprisonment, and as tradition has it, martyred in Rome, all so that something that he calls a mystery would be fully flowered inside of the people he's talking to the church in, in Colossians the letter to Colossians and for you and me think about this the apostle paul spent all those years suffering struggling pleading begging teaching for you and me right now this morning he wants you and me to be mature What does it mean to be mature in Christ? It's a big subject. So I'm just going to introduce an arc of discipleship. It's a little bit of a road map. I call it an arc like it's some sort of, you know, arch. Not an arc like Noah's Ark, but like an arc like, you know, a rainbow or something like that. And it's really sort of just a roadmap of where we're going. Other English translations, this is the one we read was the New Revised Standard. Other English translations, instead of mature in Christ, they say complete in Christ. They'll say perfect in Christ. Perfect is the old King James Version. Be perfect in Christ. We're after perfection. Now, the problem is, is that, as you can see from the various English translations, or as you hear these sort of things... It's hard to understand maturity. And so when we hear perfection, we think of all sorts of things. Uh, Pastor Garrett Leahy tells me that when he says, you know, be perfect, be perfect in Christ to most men, he thinks that they mean moral perfection, sexual purity, don't lust. When uh, Pastor Marta Gillen tells me that when women hear the word perfect, they think basically don't be overweight. Or have perfect kids or perfect hair and teeth and a perfect household and have your kids be your showcase. But when Paul says perfect, he means be in perfect union, in perfect relational union with God through Christ. Paul only thinks in terms of perfection and maturity as being in a relationship with the Father. When Jesus talks about perfection, he means perfect harmony with your fellow human being, which is kind of unusual. You'd think Jesus would be the one saying be in perfect union with God, and Paul saying, you know, be in perfect fellowship with your human being, but it's not that way because right here, Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. (laughs) You can see where Jesus cuts right to the chase. Never mincing words. To be perfect, to be a perfect Christian means economic redistribution. How's that for some politically fiery words these days? And we better move on before we start, you know, having to say that we all got to become socialist here, I guess. And that would be really uncomfortable for everyone. So we're going to chart this out this arc of discipleship. Leslie, let's grab that thing and put it up here. And I gave you a fill in the blank thing. So this is really merely for your entertainment. If you don't know it, I've sort of been in a sort of classroom mode and, um, I keep doing these fill in the blank things. Uh, here's the carnage from first service, you know, the leftover double-sided sticky tape. So, you know, we're going to take our pilgrimage on this thing and we're even going to go further than first service. So here we go. Um, If you were going to make an arc of discipleship, you would say, okay, here's Colossians 128 at the top, be mature. And then the foundational block down here would be the Holy Spirit, right? You're like, well, I don't know. But the Holy Spirit, it all begins with the Holy Spirit. You go right to Acts, and the Holy Spirit comes, and he's going to guide you and teach you. He's going to intercede. He's going to teach you how to pray. He's going to teach you how to be the church, how to live the Christian life. So you have to start down here with the fire, of the Holy Spirit. As one old monk said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, which is really what Jesus said. So we're trying to get all fiery at the very beginning. Now, don't write anything. Don't write anything, because I'm going to switch things around. If I were going to say, okay, the Bible then is the next inspired thing by the Holy Spirit. Don't don't write that down. I'm not done. You're going to really regret it, especially if you have a pen. Or a pencil with no eraser. The Bible, I would have actually, when I first came up with this sort of chart, I just put the Bible, I put the Bible all the way down here. Uh, The Bible's the foundation. Like, well, that's a little simplistic. Where is the Bible? Well, the Bible's not until way up here. We're going to get there in a minute. Because you know what came before that? Where is it? The church like, hey, now wait a second. The church, yes, the church. The church tradition came immediately after the Holy Spirit. You've got to think historically, here you are in the book of Acts. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and what happens? The church begins to live its life. Are there scriptures? No, there are simply little worship refrains, a wake-o-sleeper, a rising in Christ, and Christ will shine on you. Things like this. The Lord's prayers started getting quoted. They were meeting the first day of the week. The church began to have its life. It began to hear the Holy Spirit, and you have the words of Paul even being written in the midst of these very first years. Think around the year 30 A.D. when Jesus ascends into heaven. And for the next 14 or 15 years, the church is in formation. Letters are beginning to get written after about 15 years, Paul's letters and so forth. The Gospels are beginning to get written. People are beginning to record things, especially after about 12 years or so. They're saying like, now, what did Jesus say? Oh, well, let me tell you. I was right there. I saw it. I saw him raise the woman. Yeah, I mean, I saw him heal the woman that was bleeding. I saw him change the water into wine. That was his very first thing, I'm pretty sure, says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of this comes, out of the church comes the mission. What are we all about? Out of this church comes worship, a new way to worship God. Not as the Jews were doing it in the Old Testament, but in a brand new way, with with Jesus present, the Holy Spirit guiding them. And they begin to live a life, a spiritual life. They begin to live the life in the Spirit. Now, the problem is today, what we think the church tradition did was simply just create a bunch of moralism. And as I keep saying, moralism is the enemy of the Christian life. Moralism is the, the enemy of the Christian life and doesn't actually affect things. I mean, morals are certainly important. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying we forget about the worship and the mission of the life because we tend to think of moralism as really what Christianity runs into, what it's supposed to be. But it isn't. Moralism, moralism would be like if you, if you went to the doctor... Because you had the flu, and the doctor said, well, here's a box of Kleenex. I want you to wipe your nose every time it runs. you would be like, thank you? (laughs) I was hoping for an antibiotic. Not that that would work on the flu anyway, but who cares? That's all we all want is antibiotics anyway. Um, Just obeying morals is just treating the symptoms. And doesn't actually kill the bacteria, so to speak. We're going to get there up here as we head towards maturity when we get into the spiritual journey. This is just the history part at this moment. After all that, then comes the Bible. As it begins to get recorded, and the the letters of Paul and the Gospels begin to form, you know, and there were other Gospels being written, other stories coming out of people about 120 years after Jesus, and they begin to get written. And uh, like the Gospel of Thomas and the people who remembered and the ones that were, the tradition was passed down to them, they're saying like, that's not Jesus. He's not some uh, bizarre mystery kind of thing. He was a real person. He wasn't just a spirit. He was a human being. And he was God. They're getting all that sort of thing settled. For 400 years, all of this is getting settled out. Really, not until the 5th century does the, the actual what we call the canon of Scripture get settled on. Before that it was the life and the tradition of the church using the letters and the gospels of course people were making lists and passing those around this is the foundation of the ark of discipleship it begins with this foundation of the church of mission of worship of life and then finally the bible all of that it begins the journey towards maturity all of that begins the journey towards maturity all of that is a part of what we're after. And you can't, you can't get to maturity without these things. I will say it again. You cannot get to maturity without these things. Because here's what's going on, folks. When we hear inspired by the Holy Spirit, we don't think of us, we think of me, myself, I. When we hear mission, we think my mission, my worship my spirituality my church i could be a church all to myself we think because we're american you know liberal democracy kind of individualistic people this is the water we swim in and so we only tend to think in terms of this we think we can read the bible all by ourselves. we think we're a church unto ourselves that we don't need anybody else and let me just take you to a place that's actually pretty controversial these days uh, theologians are talking a lot about this these days that you can't not be a private christian and none is more powerful than the voice of a duke divinity school theologian uh, from duke university stanley Howerwas. and stanley Hauerwas, uh has made in the past years these bold and what are becoming very controversial statements when he says that no individual should read the bible all by themselves <laughs> this is what he says no task Is more important, you got to follow this. No task is more important than for the church to take the Bible out of the hands of individual Christians in North America. (laughs) This is good. He's not done. The Bible is not and should not be accessible to merely anyone, but rather it should only be made available to those who have undergone the hard discipline of existing as a part of God's people. Independent-spirited uh, indiv- independent Americans, this sounds wrong, doesn't it? We value the rights of the individual. We have an entire economic system and political system based upon the individual and allowing everyone freedom. God doesn't value the individual. He values community. The spiritual journey is supposed to be taken together, not alone. The Bible is supposed to be interpreted in community, not alone. When you crawl into the history of the church and other cultures, that makes perfect sense. The Jews read Scripture all together, the Old Testament law. Those letters, the letter that we're reading from Colossians, that letter was written to a people, not to an individual. This togetherness, this community, this, this is how church, this is how the Spirit gets it done in, in discipleship, together. Recently, I spoke with someone who likes Lakeland. They think it's great, uh, but they just can't make any deep connections around here. And I'll, I'll give you that. It's hard to make deep connections around here. It is any organization, any sort of social organization. And so they're empty nesters now, and um, they're kind of lost, this couple is. And so they just went back to their church from 30 years ago. And what they're finding there are other empty nesters. All their kids are grown and gone and so forth. And they're reconnecting with them. And they're all starting to make up their life again. See, my point is is that community will trump awesome church any day of the week. And this is why why cults will thrive. Jehovah's Witness or Scientology or something like that. Granted, most of the time people who get involved with cults have a little toxicity inside of themselves. And they're a little needy or susceptible or whatever. And they're looking for somebody to, you know, tell them what to do and how to behave and that sort of deal. But community will trump even the toxicity of a cult. It's that powerful. Community is the journey. And if I had a big bucket here of, like, wash, you know, like some sort of artist wash, I'd just paint this entire thing with the color of community together. Surrender, together, love. The together binds this individual surrender to the loving other people over there on those banners. There's a reason why it's the meat in the sandwich. Community is a journey, and it takes pure tenacity to stay in the church because church gets messy. And I'm surprised over and over again how many people think church ought to be made up of perfect people. There's that word perfect again. And it just ain't going to happen, nor should it happen. Recently, I encountered a local church that has a messy situation. I'm in quotes here, podcast people. A a messy situation. Some long-term staff person that everybody loves was accused of some inappropriate activity, and it probably was inappropriate because they got inside the personal private space of sort of a very needy, high-maintenance female on staff and they started playing power games and then she pulled out the Trump guard and accused him of sexual inappropriateness. Soon, the call was made to the lawyers and the whole thing is in that sort of being settled out of court type situation right now. Now, in my opinion, none of the sin and the power games and the sexual innuendo and the lawyers, none of that is, is exceptional for the church. You might be shocked. But in my opinion, like, people are sinners. They mess up. What I am surprised at and what I take issue with is that the church is attempting to hide it from the congregation and everybody else. That's the problem. That they think it should never take in place, and therefore they think they're hiding it. I think I dragged in an article from yesterday's Kansas City Star paper. Hypocrites make bad messengers. Yes, John Deal, politician. If you're a politician, your name is in public. John Deal and Joshua Dugar, or Dugar, or whatever his name is. Both of them, 16, or whatever they've been doing wrong. Oh, uh, because they say... Um, They were peddling prescriptive views of faith and family. In other words, they're telling everybody how family's important and faith is important. And then they start doing messy human things. And people find them hypocrites. Hmm, imagine that. Church is messy. Over in Olathe, a friend of ours, Pastor Tim Settle, helped start Lakeland. Uh, awesome musician in that time. Now he's an author, has a very uh, influential book out right now called Shrink about how the church ought to get smaller. (laughs) There's good. You see the kind of people we hang out with around here? Um, And, uh, but Tim's church over in Olathe is a lot like our church except one of their ministries or just a part of their DNA is they bring in a couple of dozen homeless uh, men every Sunday to worship with them. Yeah. And, uh, he says it's a pretty colorful worship service, you know, uh, with guys drunk and stoned and vomiting and yelling and hooting and hollering and all this sort of thing. And uh, he, then he started laughing. Tim said he's telling me a story. And he says, and he, wasn't, he can't tell us to his own church. He can only tell it to other pastors. He says, it's especially disconcerting when one of the homeless men, when, well, actually several of them, would dip their bread in the chalice of wine, and their fingers go way down inside. And they haven't bathed for a while, you know, and they stink to high heaven. And then you've got some well-heeled, uh, you know, soccer mom standing right behind kind of looking like, oh, I have to tear off a piece of bread and dip it in that same chalice and then shove it in my mouth. I'll have to fix my lipstick after that. And so, um, and he says that makes for a very curious, messy body of Christ. It's quite Intentional. They aren't on showcase. They aren't there for some moral example. They think that's what it means to be the church. And I think he's on to something. Of course, here at Lakeland, we have our share of sinners too. And I'll just say it, if you don't know this policy around here, that if you wish to serve communion, only certified sinners are allowed to serve communion. (laughs) If you're a holier-than-thou type, I'm sorry, we cannot use your services. But if you're a legit sinner... Come on up. It's just fine. Now, as we begin to move along on this arc, we get to the journey part. And everything I've been talking about on this messiness is exactly the beginning place where we begin to... I'm going to move this down. Where we begin to get involved with the journey. All of that stuff's been history. And we now begin to move towards maturity. And it gets very, very messy. And we begin to deal then and suggest... Spiritual disciplines. We begin to say spiritual disciplines are the next step after the Bible. Begin to become a spiritual athlete. They are not an end in themselves. We aren't telling you to do spiritual disciplines just so we can, you know, church people can feel great that we have some programs that we offer around here. We aren't doing the milestones thing for our students and our grade school kids around here so we can all look like we actually are, you know, busy. We are trying to form Christ in people. We are trying to make them mature. We are trying to get these disciplines into people. Memorizing Scripture. Dr. Dallas Willard said the most important thing the church can be doing right now is memorizing Scripture. That's a huge statement to make. All of this begins to move into dealing with your baggage. You begin to deal with your baggage. The disciplines are meant to take you someplace where you're going to encounter your demons, your deep, dark stuff. My problem oftentimes is that down here in morality, with the distraction of just focusing that the Christian life is just morality, the problem is is that it becomes a do's and don'ts church. Okay? Instead of a place where we're actually transforming. If you want to write something else on here, just write on here your baggage. Because <laughs> this is what we mean by true self and false self. Keep in mind, I'll keep saying it, and Garrett keeps saying it around here. Your true self is that you're made in the image of God. Your true self is supposed to be walking in the garden in the cool of the afternoon, afternoon with the Creator. That's who you're supposed to be. That's who you're designed to be. And there is a lie out there in church that says your false self is who you really are, and then you're going to paste on some kind of good behavior. But you're really a sinner. Now, don't get me wrong. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. It's our best label we have going because it means we deserve grace. And if we think we're actually a good person, you know, we're in trouble. You think, like, man, you sound very really conflicted on this thing. Like, no, 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 no. Your identity is true. Okay? Okay? Your identity is a true person in the image of God. Yes? The lie comes from Satan and we buy into it and we become a sinner. Now we begin to hear those tapes that start in when you're around 7 or 8 years old that begin to say you're a loser. You should have never been born. My mother and father don't think I reach snuff. So I'm just going to perform like some sort of corporate CEO executive for the rest of my life. I'm going to overcome. I'm going to look awesome. I'm going to be the best sports star. I'm going to become the best student. I'm going to get the big big, big, huge paycheck. I'm going to get a trophy wife. I'm going to do all of these sort of things to overcome some little loop that's going on in the back of my head that says, "You never measure up, you loser." our baggage you go to a counselor they'll begin to try and get you in touch saying you hear all the things you're saying to yourself do you hear yourself saying that you think everyone else in the world's an idiot and that you're angry all the time that behind your nice polite smile and so forth you're just a seething seething lake of lava That's why when you back out of your drive in the morning and the neighbor's trash can's blowing down the street, you write him off as some sort of idiot or fool. And as Jesus said, you just murdered him in your mind. That's why you can't seem to have a normal conversation with your spouse without some sort of fire rearing up inside of you that says, like, God, they took me off so much. Baggage. A lie that's going on. That's why you get alone, and you're lonely, and you take cheap shortcuts to intimacy. All of this, all of this that's going on here, folks, All of this is prayer. So when the church says, our job is to teach you how to pray, we are trying to teach you how to commune with God, how to become mature, to deal with your stuff. I got one more stage here for you. discernment. The habit of discernment. What is discernment? It's a technical term in spiritual formation, and it means the discernment of God's spirit. It means gaining wisdom, learning how life works, knowing yourself as you truly are, knowing what God thinks about you, having other friends for the journey that will speak into your life and learning to discern how things happen. This comes later in life. Sometimes you need to go to a counselor, a spiritual director, have a mentor, have a friend. Scripture will teach you to discern. Church will teach you to discern. That's kind of what you're doing right now, hopefully. Learning how to discern the voice of God is the last stage to maturity. I hate the linearity of the whole thing, you know, and making things seem like dominoes, but it has to be described this way. You can't get to discernment until you get rid of the neural noise that's coming from your false self. It's hard to hear the voice of God if you're not dealing with your junk and your baggage. Yes, that's very true, isn't it? That's the way it works. All of this discernment, we call it a habit because we are learning to respond to God's presence everywhere, all the time. And it has to be turned into routine and habituated. It has to become a discipline of saying spending time in solitude and silence, a time of surrender, a quiet time, or whatever it may be. It has to get done that way. And that's why we call it a habit. It has to become a habit of hearing God's voice the same way as where uh, when you lose your car keys or your cell phone, God forbid, that when you, like you really lose your car keys and your cell phone, um, when you lose them, you don't go out and look in the backyard, unless you happen to be doing cartwheels in the backyard. You don't go look someplace strange. You know, it's like the old joke goes, you know, like I think it was always told by monks, it's kind of like, Um, you know, I, well, it's not, it's told by monks with different contexts, but nowadays we'd say, I lost my car keys. And uh, they say, where'd you lose them? They say, I lost them in the house. And the person's out there looking in the front yard. And they say, well, why are you looking out in the front yard? They say, because the light's better out here. You know, like you don't go look somewhere else when you lose your keys. You go to the the kitchen island, you go to that dish, you go to the hook on the wall, you go to the dresser, you go, you know, your usual place. You go to the console in the car, all of that sort of thing discernment is a habit because you go to the same places you go on retreat you go uh to your chair where you do your prayer you go to scripture you go to your small group you go those places to find god because that's where you you, when you lose something your soul you go back those places that's why you're here this morning yes things kind of drifted off for the week and you came back right where you lost your keys i know they're around here somewhere You lost your soul, and so here you are. This is why we call it a habit. I'll introduce one last idea. We don't talk about this very much because it's a part of a 500-year-old spirituality. Indifference. You're like, oh, that is a really strange thing to put up here. This is called the prayer of indifference. And the prayer, and it's not a box on there, by the way. Yeah, you'd put it right above like prayer or something. This is just a spiritual discipline within uh, discernment. The prayer of indifference is a dignation spirituality that says you want to arrive at a place in prayer, a spiritual director or a spiritual master would tell you, where you no longer want to hold God hostage. God, I need my kids straightened out, and I need them straightened out right now. And I'm going to just pour a ton of prayer on you until you do my bidding. Great, 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 great. Not great. God is not a genie, cannot be conjured. God is not magic. God is not some Greek god of Poseidon that you're going to make a prayer to before you go on some siege voyage. Back to Paul. It's a relationship. And we have to get to a place of a prayer of indifference where it says, God, Not my will, not my will, but yours. And isn't that what we find with Jesus on the night of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right just a few minutes before he's going to get arrested. And he goes a little further. Now, finally at that point, all alone, the disciple's sleeping. And he falls on his knees and he prays to God. He says, God, Father, if there was any way that this cup could pass from me. Any way. I don't have to go this cross. If there's another way, God, I need to hear it right now, but I know there isn't. And then he prays the prayer of indifference. Not my will, but yours. That's a mature place to be, folks. And a thin spiritual person, a person who's not very far along in the journey, can't do that sort of prayer. How else will you make it through crisis? How else will you make it through the tough times, through illness and death and grief and financial hardship and feeling like you're not worth anything? You have to relent, surrender, bow knee to Jesus, say, not my will, yours. I want it to turn out my way, but I submit to you. Where are you at on this journey? Still down here? This is fine if you are. Don't get me wrong. Still down here like, do I believe in God? What about the Bible? How do I know it's true? How, why is it infallible or whatever? You know, what about the church? Can, I, can you deal with the fact that there's messy people at church, that they're not perfect? Are you still dealing with this sort of thing? Have you been hurt by church? Okay. What about, are you in the discipline stage? Are you in a place like, yeah, I need to really get my act together? I need to figure out some way to either listen to the Bible on audio or whatever because I hate reading books or whatever, you know, and you're like, I got to find some way to get this voice of God infused into my life. I need to be in a small group. I need a place where people will, you know, accept me for who I am. Around here, you got Mercy Street on Saturday night. Uh, Pastor Garrett does a Saturday morning, every other Saturday morning, men's discipleship breakfast. I do retreats. Pastor Marta Uh, does listen to your life and several other type of programs where you can get in touch with your history and so forth and examine your life. All of this stuff is set up to get you into some discipline so you begin to deal with this true self and false self and begin to learn to discern. That's what we're after. Don't be surprised that when when crisis hits and you can't seem to find God, I'm telling you this right now, assuming that you're not in crisis, that you can't find God, that it wasn't a mistake that you feel like you've lost your faith at that moment because you planned for it. You must, you know, it's not like you go out and run a marathon this afternoon without training. And life is like that. It is a journey. You must put the energy into it. And the great thing is you don't have to do it alone. That's how it gets done. So I hope you're somewhere on here where you can find yourself. Maybe you're way up here. Maybe you're way up there, learning the life of prayer. This is your journey. Well, speaking of together, we come to that place where we celebrate the Lord's table. And if you're a server, please come forward. Make sure you get in touch with yourself to make sure you're a sinner, okay, before you get up here. Um, Thank you so much. And we come to that place where uh, we... Um, are going to participate together. Congratulations, everyone. You did the smart thing. You showed up. You did the together thing. You didn't have to do this on your your own. You got to church, and now the church is going to carry you along. The worship team brings you along. The teaching brings you along. And now we come together and symbolically remember that you are not alone in life. That's why we have one loaf and one cup. That's why we share together. With all of our doubts and all of our questions and all of our uncertainty, we come to do this together. Now, would you stand with me, please, as we pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And now, Father, you've fed us with spiritual food. Send us out into the world to do your work. May we be light. May we be salt. May we be the best Jesus that somebody sees this week keep us, God, from judging, from holding opinions of others, of being crabby and mean-spirited. Reveal to us our false self, show us our lies, and let us smirk at ourself and say, so, so, God, you love me no matter what. In the name of Jesus, amen.